Oh Lord, chain breaker, redeemer, Lord God, break the chains, Lord God, by your word, by your spirit, God, oh Lord God, chains of addiction, Lord God, chains of lust, Lord God, chains of depression, God, of sadness, God, that thing that swallows us up, God, to where we're not focusing on you, God, I'm praying by your word, Lord, by your spirit, God, that you go into the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, God, will you set free, God, any form that is in the bondage, God, of sin, Lord Jesus, I pray that you bring conviction, God. Allow your word to go inside of their heart, God, and produce fruit, God, to produce a beautiful plant that is directed towards heaven, God, towards your glory, Lord. Oh, God, I pray that in your word today, God, that you help us to see your will, God, and to love your will, God, as your son did, as he went to the cross because of your will, Lord, God. Help us to walk in your will, Lord, even when it gets difficult, God, even when it gets hard, God, to stay the course, Lord, God, even when feeling don't follow God that we stay walking and doing your will in your way Lord God oh Lord reign oh God sovereign King Lord speak today Lord oh God speak today oh Lord God and throughout the week God minister God apply application throughout the week Lord God of your word yes God yes yes Lord it's your word it is by your power it is your word your word is your will Lord oh God Touch my brothers and sisters today in this place, Lord. Speak, God. Speak, be glorified to your scriptures, Lord. All distractions, God, remove it, God. All thoughts that are not directed towards knowing you, God, remove it. That they may see you, that your eyes are focused on you, your goodness unto us. This is our prayer, Lord God, and authority of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen, saints, body of believers, I'm so happy to be back here. Oh, man, it's been a while, but I know it's been good. Brother Javier was preaching last week. I got to listen to some of that and Pastor Brian, and so I know you guys been keeping on, keeping on. And so today we're going to continue our study as we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount, the model prayer. We're going to uh, look at verse 10. I'm sorry, not verse 10. Yeah, verse 10, the B portion of verse 10, I guess you would call it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going we're gonna to start there today. But before we jump there, let's just kind of recap. Because today we are, I would say we're ending, and Fernando, the, the title is uh, Your Will Be Done. Okay, so that's the title. So just a little recap. Today we're, we're ending this portion, the, 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 the top half of Scripture. If you notice here that, all of these petitions have been directed towards God. We have not yet asked anything of ourselves yet in this prayer, right? All of these, the petitions, the top three have been, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come now, your will be done. Bread that we're asking for, our request is about to come up soon. But as of right now, so far, all of our prayer that Jesus is teaching us has been directed towards God and his glory. That's how, that is the framework of our prayer. I know when we go into prayer, sometimes we're quick to just start asking for what we need, but we got to look at what Jesus is showing us. He's given us the priority in prayer. We can't always go asking me, me, God, do this, do that. We got to go to the scriptures and Christ is showing us brothers and sisters. He's showing us that you got to pray to your father. You got to remember that your father's in heaven and you're on, 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 on earth. And so you have to direct your prayer towards him. Your priority has to be that I want my Lord's name to be hallowed in the earth. 
in my life and all the world, our priority has to be that I want his kingdom to come. I want to see him reigning fully, completely on this earth and in my life. And now we're going to be looking at, I want his will to be done completely, fully in my life and my brothers and sisters life all throughout the world. I want God's will to be done. And I know when we talk about God's will, at least with me, it's always that subjective aspect of his will as in what is God's will for me specifically? Who should I marry? Which job should I work at? Or uh, what company I'm going to be at? Or, or what place I should go and travel to? We often want to know what's God's will in that subjective individual sense, but we want to look at his bigger will. That has to be more of a priority, more than just us asking God, what is his will for me specifically? We want to know what is his overarching will for us, the body, the church, what is his purposes? And so that's what we're going to kind of look at here today. We're going to look at God's will. And so here we have, again, remember, this is Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the mountain, right? He has all his disciples before him. He has his, his main crew, his clique. He has his, as they would say in the urban area, he has his day ones with him. Day ones is just saying the, the ones that's been with you from day one. That's just a, a slang way of saying that, right? So he has his day ones, his disciples with him in front of him. And he has a crowd of people out there on the mountain, I'm sure. And, and Jesus is preaching and he's showing them what prayer looks like, what prayer doesn't look like, what pagan prayer looks like, what righteous prayer looks like. And, and now he's leading us here to the, uh, the, the final portion of our prayer that's directed directly towards God in the model prayer. And that is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as you look at this verse that reads, matter of fact, let's just read it. I know I'm kind of jumping into it, but I want to read it. Verse 10, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Matthew 6, verse 10. Matter of fact, I'm going to start in 9 and just kind of come down to 10. 9, he says, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 10 is our key portion. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you look at this verse, it shows us something here, or it, it tells us something here. It tells us that the major difference, I'm sure there's a ton of other differences, but the major difference between what is happening in the heavenly realm where the angels are and what's happening here on earth or in Sacramento, California, one of the major differences is that God's will is being done there completely. And that his will is not so much being done here, at least to the degree that it is in heaven. It is not being done in the same way, in the same spirit, as, or in the same amount, if you will, as it is done in heaven. So Jesus is making a contrast between what is happening in heaven and what happens here on earth. And he shows us that, yes, God's will is done completely there, but it's not done completely here. And so we're saying you should be praying and desiring that God's will is done completely here as it is done completely there. And what we must remember, remember these three petitions, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. These three petitions are errors imperatives. They are commands and they're written in the third person. 
And so if you were reading this verse in, in, in the heir's command sense or in the third person, it would read, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying and asking God. We're saying, God, we want you to just let your will come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the petition. That is the prayer that Jesus is teaching us, his disciples, to pray that we may say, God, let your will come. It is our desire, God. Our desire, God, is that your will may come here on earth as it is in heaven let that come see this is a major huge great big verse because but because he, he's showing us that this world is not as it should be and that there there's something happening in heaven that is going the way that God has called it to be but there's things that happening here on earth that are not as God would call them to be see it, there are starving children here on this earth, and we know that it's not God's will because there's no starving children in heaven. See, th there's murder of innocent children here on earth, and we know that it's not God's will because there's no murder of children in heaven. There's a difference from what's happening in heaven and what's actually going on here on the earth. See, God's will is not being done completely as it's done in heaven. When I think about this, I, I think about the atheist argument. See, there's a really popular atheist argument. And the atheist material evolutionary mindset is this, that either one, God is not all powerful and all loving, or two, that God doesn't exist. And the reason they say that God is either doesn't exist or is not all powerful and all loving because they say, when we look at all the madness in the world, when we look at all the evil and the bad and the suffering that's happening in this world, either God is not all powerful to fix it or he's not all loving to just allow it to go. That is generally the, the, the atheist position, the materialistic evolutionary position that yes, God can't exist because if he was so loving and so powerful that he would stop all of the madness, all of the wrong, all of the evil that is going on in this world. And since evil and madness is still going on, then, then obviously they're saying that God doesn't exist. But in that argument or in that presupposition, what the atheist mindset is missing is that evil things are done by people evil acts are done by people there's a hand behind that trigger that pulls the bullet the person has to ball his fist and swing it on that person who's made in the image of God evil acts don't happen just out of nowhere the problem is not God's will those are not God's will the problem is us it is man's will that is not operating in accordance to God's will that is why the world that is why the evil we can't point the blame at God because that is not God's will it is not God's will that we murder it's not God's will that we do the wrong but that is the will of man walking in disobedience to God's will so the blame has to be on us. That is the issue. See, it, it can't be placed squarely or, or solely on God. And so Jesus has recognized that. And so he, he's showing us that I want your desire then, since we see that God's will is not being done completely here on earth as it is in heaven. I want your desire, disciples, to be that God's will in his kingdom come. I want that to be at the top of your prayer, that as God's will is done in the heavenlies where David is, where Moses is, where the angels are, where the seraphim who are praising him night and day, how his will is done there. I want you to pray that that will is done on earth. 
as well. Now, this prayer is not asking for, or this prayer is not in the sense of that if we pray, God is going to make the world perfectly perfect and complete outside of Jesus' coming. No, that is a position of a premillennialist. They believe the world is going to get better and eventually God's will will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is not what Jesus is bringing here. That is not what he's saying. Remember, this is an heiress imperative, meaning fullness and completeness. Jesus, when he says that, pray that God's will be done on heaven on, um, as it is on earth, he's pointing to that fullness of the kingdom of God as it comes and it is established here on the new heavens and new earth. That full alignment when heaven meets earth. See, this, this verse is forward looking. It has some aspects of right now where we want God's will and his kingdom to come right now, but it's also pointing to a future kingdom when God's kingdom will come on this earth and he will reign and his will will be completely done as it is in heaven. See, right now, if God decrees something in heaven, in the heavenly realms, guess what? The angels, the angels are not there pushing back and questioning God, saying, God, you, you, you really think we should do that? See, if God decrees something or says something in the heavenly realm, the, 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 the seraphim are not saying, God, really? Do you really just want us to sing holy, holy all day long? God, I, I, I really don't like that song. See, that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. The reason that it's not happening there is because in heaven, in the heavenly realm, God's name is hallowed. God is treated as holy. His kingdom has come there. So their will is God's will. They are in perfect alignment with God's will. But not so much with us here on this earth. What God has decreed is not always done. We know it's not God's will to lie, but guess what? We lie. We know that it's not God's will for us to steal, but yet we steal. We know it's not God's will for us to lust, but yet we lust. It is not God's will. It is not God's will that we, uh, we, we, we steal. It is not God's will that racism exists. It is not God's will that prejudice exists. It's, it's not God's will that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and we hurt and steal and rob from one another. That is not God's will. But yet, we do it. We do it. And that is the difference from what is happening in the heavenly realms and what is happening here on this earth. Now, I want to make something clear. You, what you must understand that when I say it is not God's will, I'm referring to God's revealed will, his revealed will or his preceptive will. See, what you must understand is that there are you can you can split God's will into two categories. Some theologians split it into three. You have God's hidden will or his sovereign will, and you have God's revealed will or his perceptive will. There's, a, there's another will, um, his uh, dispositional will, but we're not going to get into that third category today. We're just going to deal with the two wills. There's a revealed will, his perceptive will, and there's God's sovereign will or his uh, hidden will. Now, first, I kind of want to describe to you what will uh, God's sovereign will, because you got to understand when Jesus is saying Thy will be done. I want to show you which will he's speaking to. OK, so in, in God's sovereign will, God's sovereign will is it's the will that cannot be thwarted. It cannot be resisted. It's, it's God saying, let there be light. He decreed that sovereignly and light cannot say, I don't feel like coming out. God said, let there be light and his declarative or his decreative, his sovereign will and light came out. When God created the universe, that was his, his sovereign will. 
He said, let there be light. He, he said, let the universe come into existence. And guess what? The universe came into existence. Why? Because God had sovereignly decreed it. The universe can't reject it. It can't slow down because God has sovereignly decreed it. It is going to come to pass. That is God's sovereign will. That will can't be resisted. It can't be changed. It can't be moved. Once God has sovereignly said it, it is going to pass. An example of God's sovereign will is uh, in Daniel 4.35, you have King Nebuchadnezzar, and look what he says about God's will when he comes to understand the sovereignty of God. He says this, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. None can stay his hand. If God is going to do something, nobody can move it. Nobody can push back against God's sovereign will, his, his, his uh, decree, whatever he says in his sovereign will. If God has sovereignly said it, nothing is going to change it. As I said, the universe came into existence through God sovereignly decreeing it, and it came into existence. But do you know another place, another place where we find God's sovereign will? A place that we've all experienced God's sovereign, uh, declarative, the creative will. And that is at your birth. At your birth. That was God's sovereign, declarative will. I want to show you that. Go with me to Acts 17. Acts 17. Acts 17, I want you to look at verse 26. Look what it said. We all here? And he says this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from one of us. So God, this verse is showing us that God has determined the times that you would be born. He's determined who your parents would be. God has solemnly determined that me and Esmeralda would have be parents to Nehemiah, Serenity, and Riley. This was God's sovereign decree. He, he determined, he knew which times I would be in and how it would all come about. He had sovereignly decreed this. And just a, let me just go a, a little off tangent here, just a little side note. This thought of God sovereignly decreeing something, giving life an ultimate meaning and purpose, is antithetical to the atheist worldview. See, from, from and I know today I'm like bagging on the atheist today, but that's just where we are. But from an atheist worldview, an atheistic, materialistic, evolutionary worldview, life has no meaning. We're just here by a product of chance. They believed it was a Big Bang explosion, and uh, through evolution over millions of years, here we are. There's no sovereign plan. There's no ultimate purpose of life. We are just here existing. Meaning, and, and, and including their kids, there's no ultimate purpose. So their kids were not made to be their kids. It just happened out of just random molecules coming about. Our body just formed. We had children. They came out other beings. We're just walking, living organisms and cells. There's no ultimate meaning and purpose in life. But the biblical worldview says that, no, my children, 
They were ordained to me by the sovereign will of God. That's the difference between the atheist worldview and a, and a biblical worldview. Matter of fact, I was, I was watching a, a YouTube video today, uh, this week, and it was a debate between Jordan Peterson, which is like this rising thought leader. He has some Christian values and this atheist. And the atheist was saying, like, when life gets hard, she says she looks at herself and says, nothing matters anyway, so just get on with it. And that is how she encourages herself. She says, nothing matters. Because remember, we're just here by accident. It's just, just by chance. So she says to herself, she says she looks in the mirror and says, girl, nothing really matters anyways. Just get on with it in her, her British accent. And, and that is the atheist worldview. But that is not the believer's worldview. So just had to go there a little bit. But back to our, 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 main, our text here in 26. So he says that God has determined the times to which we were born, meaning he has appointed the time that you would be born in this period. Think about this. You could have been born in the 5th century in the Dark Ages. I could have been born in the American South as a slave. But yet that wasn't in God's declarative sovereign will. He allowed us, he allowed you to operate in this time and period right now. You are here for a purpose. Why? Because God has determined it. He has called us to that. So as opposed to us, I know sometimes we like to look at our Christian heroes and, and, and look at what they did back in the days. But you must understand, you are not back in the days. You are here in 2018 because God has decreed it. So you must operate in the purposes and the plan that God has for you right now. So we see that he has determined the times in which we were born. The scripture also says he had determined the boundaries of their habitation, meaning God has determined that you would live on this continent and not another continent, that you would live here and not Poland, that you would live here and not the Middle East. God has sovereignly decreed where you would go, the boundaries of your habitation. That's God's will. And the other thing about God's sovereign will, God's, as I mentioned earlier, God's sovereign will is also known as his hidden will by some theologians. And it's known as his hidden will because it's not always clear to us what's going to happen. We don't know what God has sovereignly decreed for us to happen uh, tomorrow. We don't know what God has already sovereignly decreed is what's going to happen when we leave this place. We don't know those things. Those things are secret things. Those are the things that God has hidden within himself. He knows. And as we go about living our life, then those things become clear to us. But we can't get any insight into God's hidden will or that sovereign declarative will. That is why I would say in Deuteronomy 29, it reads this way. It says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us, to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. See, we can't know the secret things of God's will, his declarative will, the things that are in the dark that we can't see. We don't know what's around the corner. And so we're not necessarily responsible for that. But what we are responsible for is God's revealed will, what he has revealed in scripture, what he has revealed about how we ought to live, how we ought to re uh, relate to one another, how we ought to relate to God. Those are the things that all people are responsible for, even the non-believer. Even the non-believer. And some will say, but what if a non-believer has never read the scripture? You just say that that's God's revealed will what's in the scripture. What if they've never run the scripture? Some of you guys know where I'm going here. Romans 2, right? What is Romans 2? Let's go to Romans 2 to those who may have never read it. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. 
through 16. And this will tell us why even the non-believer is responsible for God's revealed will, God's moral revealed will. Why? Because he has written his moral will, that law, upon our hearts. Look what it says here in Romans 2, 14 to 16. I hear pages turning. We're good. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the works of the law, God's revealed will, which is his word, is his uh, law. His word is his will. They show the works of the law written in their heart, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. So God has given us his revealed will through scripture, and he's also given us his revealed will, at least when it comes to his moral law, his moral will that has been written on the hearts of each person on the planet. And we are all responsible for that aspect. We're all responsible for it. And as you will now guess, the difference between God's sovereign will and God's revealed will is that his revealed will can be resisted. His revealed will can be um, thwarted. It can be pushed back against. It can be uh, uh, blocked, if you will. That is the difference between God's sovereign will and God's revealed will. And this is the difference between what is happening on in heaven and what is happening in earth and why Jesus is teaching us to pray this prayer in heaven, that in heaven, whatever is happening up there, that it happens on earth. Because when God decrees something in heaven, when he decrees something through his moral will, his, his moral uh, will, it comes about. It is perfectly aligned with what he decrees. But when God decrees something here on this earth, you see that we don't obey. We don't keep it. So Jesus is showing us, let's pray that that happens, that we keep what God has willed, what he has revealed. So we see the aspects of the will that Jesus is pray or are teaching us to pray about. That God's will that he has revealed in the scripture, that God's will that he has revealed in our hearts, that we keep it, that we do it just as if they do it in heaven. And this is a challenge. Because God's will his word is his will. That's his revealed will. His word is his will. God's will can be difficult. Let's just look at what we've been going through. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let's just take one example. Turn the other cheek. Matthew 5. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. That is God's revealed will. But we see that that is a hard will to carry out. And when we get in that circumstances, our, our pride may raise up, our, our anger may raise up, and as opposed to turning the other cheek, we turn the other hand. See, this, this is what I mean, how his will, this is his will. That is his will for the believer, that they do that, that they act that way. But it's, it gets really difficult to live it out that way. And that's why there's a difference between what is happening here on this earth and what's happening in heaven. Here we resist his will. Another text in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's revealed will, that his believers remain sexually pure, that they abstain from sexual immorality. But we know how that goes. We know how that goes in the world, and we know how that goes even with believers. There's fornication, there's pornography, but it is God's will that we abstain from that. That's God's will. But we know because of our flesh, our sinful nature, that becomes difficult. Now, not only are we responsible for God's revealed will in his scripture or his revealed will and has written upon our heart. But guess what? We are also responsible for the gifts and the calling that he has placed upon our lives. We're responsible for the gifts and the calling that he has placed upon our lives, his will in that aspect. Let me give you an example of that. First Corinthians nine sixteen. First Corinthians nine sixteen. Let me just kind of summarize what's happening here. Paul is preaching or he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And he's explained to him how they are responsible. I mean, in God's eyes, they're responsible for financially supporting the ministers of the gospel. And, he, and he's telling them that even though they're responsible for, for supporting him, he's not asking for their support. And then he goes on to show them that I'm not, I'm not writing this letter also to make you feel guilty that you can start supporting me. And he's going to say that. I'm going to preach this gospel no matter what, because it has been placed upon me. And so look what he says here in verse 16. I want you to see this. He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast on for. I am under compulsion. Here goes the verse that I'm pointing you to. He says, for woe is me. If I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He says, I am under compulsion. Woe is me. That woe, this verse is kind of like him saying, cursed is me if I preach not the gospel. Why is Paul so um, strong on this? Because as you remember Paul on the Damascus road, what happened? Paul is walking on the Damascus road. God comes and strikes him down, blinds him. And then he reveals his calling in Paul that, Paul, I have called you to go to the Gentiles. Paul, I have called you to go to the Jews. This is your calling. Paul was called for this particular purpose. So Paul is saying, whether you pay me or not, guess what? I got to go and preach the gospel because God has placed this calling upon me. I cannot disobey it. He even says that to uh, I think it's the, the governor Felix when, when he says I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision that was given me he says woe is me if I don't preach this gospel this is my calling this is who, who God has made me to be I have to walk in this whether you pay me or not see I, I like Oswald Chambers his, his commentary on this verse and he, and he speaks about how this woe is me if I preach the gospel is not upon every believer and he says, yes, every believer has a responsibility to share the gospel. But in the context of this verse, this verse is to the ministers of the gospel who God has called to go and proclaim and to go do this thing of sharing his truth. He said, that's why Paul can say, woe is me because God has knocked me off my feet and told me that this was his purpose and his calling for me. So I got to ask you on I got to, I got to ask you about you. I know God has equipped you and called you. What is your woe that you does, that if you don't do, you know that you'll be in trouble, so to speak. What is your woe? 
Your, your woe may be, God has called me to go and minister to battered women. Woe is me if I don't do that. Or, or, or woe is me if I don't go to this convalescent ministry because I know that God has called me to go and minister to convalescent. Or, or woe is me if I don't go to the homeless shelter because I know that it is God's will. He has called me for this purpose. What is your woe? Everybody has a woe that if they don't do that, God has called them to do something. See, we can't resist that will either. We can't resist that will either. And that is why the Apostle Paul, we find later in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Timothy, stir up the gift that is inside of you. He tells Timothy, Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear because Timothy was starting to get scared. He sees that his, his, his mentor Paul is locked up in jail and he's seeing that all the persecution that is coming other believers way and Timothy is getting a little bit scared. And so Paul has to go to Timothy and he says, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear here. Timothy, the calling is upon you. The gift is upon you. We, we laid our hands upon you. We confirmed that this calling is upon you. Timothy, you have to go and preach the gospel. The calling is on you. See, he had to do it. The elders confirmed it. God ordained it. So Paul is, was encouraging Timothy that he had to go and do what God has revealed through the elders through the revelation that God has given him to go and preach this gospel. We have to obey God's will. And we see with Timothy, the thing that was stopping him was fear. And there's many other aspects. There's many other things that stops us from walking in God's will. And that's what separates from us from heaven and the things here on earth. In heaven, they're doing God's will. Down here on earth, we're not so much. See, this verse actually, when you look at this verse, our main text, it really tells us what life is going to be like in heaven. Because this verse tells us that once sin is removed and once flesh is removed, that our will will perfectly align with God's will. That's what's happening in heaven. That's why Jesus said, I, let's pray that my will, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's perfectly aligned in heaven. Why? They don't have sin to deal with here in heaven. They don't have flesh to deal with in heaven. And so we see once sin and flesh is removed, there's perfect alignment with God's will. That's what we have to look forward to in the new heavens, new earth, perfect alignment with God's will, with a gleeful joy of doing God's will. Why? Because our will then becomes God's will. That's the beauty of this, what we're seeing here. But again, this is not the case on what's happening here on this earth right now. Why? Because we still have sin. We still have flesh. And so we still have to press on. We still have to press forward and keep going. And I know it gets hard, right? Because we look at God's will. We see the things that he's calling us to do. We see what he has revealed in our spirit and some of our callings. And, and we know it gets really tough. I don't always want to be the good guy. I don't always want to turn the other cheek, right? I don't always want to be the bigger person. But that's what God's will and his revealed scripture has called us to do and be. So we have to have a motivation 
that keeps us going and pursuing and praying this prayer that God's will is done, not just on this earth, but in our lives. And that person or that motivation we get it from is Jesus Christ himself. Because look, Jesus is the only one outside of heaven who has carried out God's will completely on earth as it is in heaven. He's the only one outside of heaven that has completely carried out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Because remember we said in heaven it's carried out completely. Jesus is the only one who has come down here on this earth and carried out God's will completely. And when I think about that, I often ask myself, I say, Jesus, what was your motivation? What was the thing that drove you to consistently stay about your father's business? What was that thing that motivated you? Because if I can understand that, then that should help me and the rest of the body of Christ as we go and fight this fight to keep God's will. And one of the things I come to see that is, matter of fact, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to show you this verse. Go with me to John 4, 34 real quick. And it's just about God's will. Jesus is our motivator. And this is the verse where I was questioning and wondering what was the motivator. And look what he says here, John 4, 34. This is after Jesus, he's talking to the woman at the well. And his disciples come back. And they see him talking to this woman. And then they, they go to him and they, I'm going to just read it here. Look what it says here. I'm going to start in uh, 31, matter of fact. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, here goes the verse, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. So as, as I'm meditating on that verse, I'm saying, okay, but what is the ultimate motivation behind that, Jesus? Is it just command? Is it just duty? Is it just because your father has commanded that you're going to keep it? Is it just that you want to accomplish his works? What is the underlying motivation? Because when, when, when my wife says, um, baby, go and take out the trash, I'm not doing it just because my wife commanded me, but I'm doing it because underlying her command is this love that I have for my wife. So that is the underlying motivation for my obedience. It's my love. And so when I'm reading this text, I'm saying, Jesus, I, I see what you said, that you want to accomplish your father's will, but it still doesn't give me the ultimate motivation behind it. And then we come to John 14.31, and it becomes clear. Go there, John 14.31. Look what Jesus says here. I hear the pages turning. He says here in 1431, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up and let us go from here. Yes, Jesus, there I see the motivation so that the world may know that I love the Father. 
I do exactly as he commanded or as he wills. That is the underlying motivation of, the, 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 of Christ in keeping the obedience. It's the love of the Father. Yes, it's the love of us. See, you got, you got to understand this. When we look at the cross, oftentimes we go and we individualize it. And we just say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And yes, that is true. But what we see that Jesus Christ died on the cross is also an example of the son's love for the father. The cross is an example of what love really looks like. That father, even though you have called me to go and die, even though these nails hurt in my hand, even though I'm stretched out out wide, your will says to go. And so even though I'm getting pain from following your will, because I want the world to know that I love you, I am going. See, the cross is a demonstration of the love of the triune God as well. It is a love, it is a demonstration of his love for us, but it's also a demonstration of God's love for God. It's a, love, it's a demonstration, you got to understand it, it's a demonstration of God's love for God. And I know you're like, what? But that's what Christ is showing us here. He says, I, I, I'm doing this, I'm walking in obedience. I want the world to know that I love the Father. So I'm going to keep his command even when pain comes my way. And that has to be our motivation. Jesus, I'm going to follow your will even when pain comes my way. Why? Because I love you. And why do I love you? Because you first loved me. And that becomes our motivation for keeping the will of God, for doing his will even when it hurts. And women that have children, you know this more than anybody. Because in the midst of childbirth, that pain hurts, that pain hurts, you're screaming, you're crying, but because of love, you continue to push through. And I remember when my wife was having Riley, and she's pushing, and she's pushing, and she's grunting, and she's sweating, and as soon as a baby came out, they, they put Riley on her chest, and she said, oh, my baby, and she, she started to cry. And it's like that pain that she just had, now she's just holding her baby, and she said, oh, my baby. See, love helps us to push through the pain, the uncomfortableness of following God's will. When we get in tough situations, we reflect back on the gospel, the love of God, what he has done for us, how he has redeemed us, how we were nothing, how we were mess, and yet God came and made us something. That is the motivation on why we keep the will of God. That is the motivation and why we pray this prayer and ask that his will be done here on this earth because before it is done here on this earth, it has to start with you and I. It has to start with us carrying out his will and desiring that that future coming of the fullness of his will comes. But it starts first with us. And it's our motivation it has to be the gospel has to be the love of God. That was Christ's ultimate underlying motive. He loved the Father. The Father loved the Son. She says, Father, no matter what you tell me to do, because I love you, I'm walking through it. That has to be our prayer, believers. I know it's tough. I know it's tough when we read these scriptures. Like, Jesus, really? You want me to do this? Really? You're calling me to do this? When his, his providential will puts you in circumstances that may cost you your job, may cost you relationships, you still want me to do this? It gets tough. It gets difficult. But like Christ, we have to go and say, I want the world to know that I love you. I want the world to know that I love you, so I'm, I'm going through this. 
So in the midst of your prayer, when you're praying to the Father, when you're praying to God, remember it is not about us. Yes, we can go to him, but first we got to think about his name being hallowed, his kingdom coming, his will be done. That has to be the heart of our prayer. That has to be what's driving us when we go to our knees. We want to so see his will come. It can't be our will. Our will is the thing that gets in the way of God's will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, my God, uh, thank you for the love of the gospel, Lord. God, I pray, help your word stay in the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Oh, God, when temptation comes their way, may they remember the love that you have demonstrated on the cross. God, may love for you be the thing that drives them forward to keep your name hallowed. May they remember what you've done, God, how you are so worthy. God, allow your kingdom to come and take rule and root in all of our lives, Lord. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your work on the cross. It's your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.